Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy Howes. I am the host of this podcast. What are we talking about today? Well, let me tell you. I'm so pumped. Ever since I saw her playing with the mammals in the early 2000s, I have had a pretty healthy obsession with Ruth Miranda, and she is pretty easy to obsess over. Her soaring musicianship on stage and tape as well as the amazing community she's cultivated along with her husband and bandmate Mike Miranda through touring and through their biannual music festival in upstate New York, The Hoot. Raised basically with a fiddle in her hand, Ruth spent her childhood surrounded by professional musicians, which included her father, the much-loved Jay Unger, who, along with his wife and bandmate Molly Mason, is probably best known for his song, Ashokan Farewell. In 1990, Unger's song was used as the centerpiece to Ken Burns' nine-part documentary, The Civil War, and yes, you are hearing that lonesome fiddle in your head right now, aren't you? just want to leave room for you to think about that lonesome fiddle. Although Ruth loved singing and playing fiddle, she saw a different path for herself as an actress. She attended Bard College to study her craft and moved to New York City for a few years after that. There she was introduced to a group of rabble rousers who loved traditional folk music, which was the music that Ruth had grown up with. What's so funny is that she never realized that other younger people were interested in that kind of music, so she stuck around that group and immersed herself in that style of playing once again. Someone who made quite the impression on Ruth was a young indie rock drummer named Michael Miranda. The two started a personal and musical relationship which eventually morphed into the mammals. Eventually, the pair moved back to Ruth's hometown in the area of Woodstock, New York, took a break from the mammals, got married, made duo records, had two amazing kids, and started recording under the mammals again in just the last few years or so. Uh, There is a lot to say about Ruth and a lot of questions to ask Ruth. We'll have to have her back on because I was only able to ask about 40% of my questions. Ruth is a treasure, and I'm grateful that she appeared on the podcast. We're going to take a listen to The Mammals' new song, East Side, West Side. This is from their new album, Nanette, which is out now and available wherever you get your music. I suggest Bandcamp or buying a physical copy directly from the band. Um, Let's take a listen to East Side, West Side, and then we'll get to our conversation with Ruth Miranda of the Mammals on Basic Book. I'm singing from the north side to the south side. We could be stronger than ever before. I'm singing from the east side to the west side. From the shore to the shining shore, keep a walking on a good path. Tell me what you found We can fight or we can rest 
called Ruth or Ruthie, Ruth Unger, Ruth Unger, Miranda, Ruthie, Unger, Miranda, Ruth, Ruthie, Miranda? These days, I'm generally calling myself Ruth, but I don't mind when people say Ruthie as long as it's with a Y. Um, I like spelling it with a Y. I always have since I was a kid. So if it's Ruthie with a Y or just plain old Ruth, just to be safe, those are both good. Unger is now my middle name, so Unger is still part of my name, and when I do music stuff, I just say Ruth Unger because that's my original name in the music world, and uh, Ruth Unger Miranda or Ruth Miranda when I'm in my mom world and being um, a mom of kids whose last name is Miranda, so I don't really know. I'm, I'm in that, you know, not worrying, getting too hung up on it phase of names. You're like uh, the John Cougar Mellencamp <laughs> of upstate New York. I always, I always tell people that. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of that, you were born in the mid-70s and grew up in the Woodstock, New York area. Can you set the scene for what your hometown is like and what, you, what connects you to that town now? Yeah, sure. We actually moved to the Woodstock area to the house that Mike and I currently live in, which is in West Hurley, New York, when I was seven. So um, I grew up, the first part of my upbringing was down in um, like Putnam, Westchester area, a little further south, a little closer to the city. Um, And then, yeah, we moved to the Woodstock area. I went to a hippie private school as a kid. Lots of other kids of of artists and and misfits. Um, It it was a fun upbringing. Like, you know, I I probably didn't brush my hair for all of the third grade. You know, Um, it's it's nice. You know, a lot of secondhand clothes. And yeah, just being unique was appreciated in kids around that time and that place. So that's, that's cool. Still, even so, my parents, um, well, they they play traditional folk music, so um, that's like even more obscure than a lot of things that other people's parents were doing. So on the weekends when I was at a square dance, you know, I didn't really talk about that at school. It's one of those funny things looking back where I thought, oh, no one's going to really get this because they taught square dancing. I eventually went to public school starting in fifth grade, and I remember they taught square dancing in gym and there's probably people listening to this who remember having gym class where you had to and they always do it at like fifth grade when it's so awkward it's like the you know or you know a time when being told to like partner up and hold hands all that stuff is so awkward anyway um I only bring that up just to say that that I even though being being unusual and and unique was kind of respected in the Woodstock area and still is to a certain extent. Uh, conforming is, is sort of a little frowned on. Uh, still, I kind of tried to conform, you know, probably starting around fifth grade uh, up through high school, tried to kind of be normal, 
which was an utter failure. Yeah, what did that um, look like for you, looking normal? <laughs> <laughs> like pretending I knew music on the radio, which I really didn't. I only heard that kind of radio on the school bus. I mostly just heard fiddle music at home, which really comes in handy now. But at the time, it felt like I was at a disadvantage. <laughs> Who are you pretending to like? <sighs> well, I think I actually really did like Paula Abdul. Maybe... Maybe pretended to like Guns N' Roses. I don't know. I don't know. It's a great, great question. It's, I got to think about that a little more. So you're you're an only child? I am. Yeah. Uh, Jay Unger is your dad, great fiddler, Lynn Hardy, country songwriter, and luthier. Yes. When did she become a luthier? Uh, when she hurt herself on the job in Northampton, Massachusetts, she was... Uh, she was always really handy, and she worked as um, like a facilities person at Thorns Marketplace in Northampton and uh, hurt herself repairing something and hurt her back. And Workman's Comp in the state of Massachusetts, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I should say, paid for her to learn a new trade. And she had to take a little um, survey, like a little questionnaire to see what would be the best new trade for her to learn. And she took this whole long survey and it came back that she should either be a performing artist or a luthier. <laughs> and she already was a singer and, you know, wasn't finding that to be very lucrative. So Workman's Comp paid for her to learn the art of luthery at um, Fred and Instrument Workshop in Amherst, Mass with Tony Creamer. And she learned to repair and make instruments uh, from him, from Ivan Schmuckler, from... A lot of different folks. Uh, Brad Nickerson. She, she, yeah, I would visit my mom on the weekends. This is when I was like in high school and this is happening. And make, and, you know, sand the top of a guitar for hours. <laughs> yeah, my mom's awesome. She fixes stuff. She just made an octave mandolin this week that is gorgeous. And I haven't been in the same room with it yet, of course, but it looks beautiful. On oh, wow. <laughs> I really got more than I bargained for with that. Well, that's a, an amazing story. <laughs> Isn't that a cool story? Yeah. Workman's comp. That's the reason she's a luthier. That and the fact that she's handy and musical and the survey figured that out. Wow. Uh, so your parents split up when you were about eight years old. And you've talked about this a little bit, but music was all around you as a young person. You started learning fiddle when you were four. Um, and there was a bunch of stringed instruments, visitations of members of New York's Jewgrass gang which I'm interested to learn more about. And then what did all that look like to you as a kid? I would say that my childhood definitely was one of visitations of people from all sorts of niches of acoustic music. I remember the Boys of the Lock staying in our house. I remember Norman and Nancy Blake staying in our house. I remember um, all sorts of different folks playing music till all hours in the living room. I still am really good at sleeping through jam sessions um it took me a long time to not have music at night put me to sleep i remember mike taking me to the middle east in boston to see dinosaur jr or something really cool and that's I, a loud band i fell asleep like <laughs> like three songs in i was like oh it's really hard for me to uh, it, i eventually did shake that but um yeah i loved being around music and having having it everywhere and having people visit our house, you know, being an only child, it is fun to like suddenly have your house full of people <laughs> yeah, and see your parents act in a different way, you know, like kind of uh, 
put on, I think everyone could relate to that, like seeing your house kind of get made into a hospitality vibe. And, and, in, and in the case of my home, you know, yeah, pulling out all different instruments and yeah. And, and, and as I became older and started to finally play music on my own, I remember being in that house and having friends visit us and, and play music and, you know, try to kind of continue that energy. We had a jam one time. I think I was like in my early 20s, we had this jam we called the um, the underappreciated instrument jam, <laughs> which was basically like all the weird instruments in the house. There was a didgeridoo and a one of those little frogs with a bumpy back that you rub with a stick and, you know. <laughs> does that have an official name? It does. I think it might be something I would pronounce badly. So I'm going <laughs> to, it might be a guiro. It might not. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew that fact. Um, yeah, anyway, so, yeah, there's a bugle still laying around the house. We just did a live stream last week, and our daughter, Opal, who's eight, like, picked up the old bugle and was just blasting it at the end of every song just because there's this empty place where there's no applause. And my dad was commenting on the live stream being like, is that is that my old bugle? Like, yep, <laughs> same family bugle. Wow. Yeah, it's a funky house. It's a lot of cool stuff still laying around. So what about connecting with different people when you were younger? Like how music helped you connect with your family and to other adults? And then also like friendships with people your own age. How did playing music foster those connections? Yeah, that's a great question. It almost was the other way around. Like I feel like finding musicians my own age was what made me realize that I was a musician. Because I, previously to that, was just like a, a kid of musicians. And anyone who has parents who are self-employed or entrepreneurial or bring their work home at all know that as their kid, you kind of learn the ropes of that. You know, whether your family has a hardware store or whatever, you know, you kind of pick up on the rhythm of that life and that craft, if you will. And so I wasn't owning it at all. I went into theater and really loved studying theater and I still love that that practice and I try to bring it to my singing. But um it was really once I got to the city and 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 was doing theater and then also hanging out with people who played music and some of them were interested in traditional music and even know who who knew who my folks were or had some of their records which was really shocking to me. It made me excited and thought like, oh, yeah, okay, so this is a thing that exists outside my house and amongst people of my own age. So that was really a pivotal moment. And I, I think I I really latched onto those first people that I met that were like mm. that. <laughs> One of them being Mike, who wrote songs. I remember he was introduced to me as like, he writes songs, he plays guitar, you got to meet my new roommate, Mike. And I was like, great so my standards <laughs> were very high and I was like yeah this is gonna suck but um he didn't suck so. no not <laughs> and at the all. rest is history yeah. <laughs> uh you said you've said I was a kid with a fiddle who loved to sing and you have like a wonderful singing voice a huge range of emotion when did you realize that you can sing and what did you think of your voice how do you and how do you feel about it now hmm uh I love the story that's in the song and the character in the song and the the thing that's different each night and special about each 
singing of a song. Um, and I just focus on that more than my actual voice. And I think that's what makes a voice interesting. You know, I know there's techniques for making your voice sound more in tune or to have more control of your breath and dynamics. And I really do believe in dynamics, not just as a technique, but as a, not just the, the loudness and quietness of the sound, but the dynamics of your emotional intensity, you know, um, so I guess I, I really do take my theater training into my singing. And so when you say, what do I think about my voice? It's like, I don't even know. <laughs> like, I, I'll listen to recordings and be like, oh, that was a little sharp or flat. Like, I can analyze my voice and I can say like, um, can you do that EQ that makes me sound a little less nasal or stuff like that? Like, I am picky sometimes about my voice. But I think um, I think I just really focus so much on what I'm proud of about what I do, which is the conveying of a feeling. Um, my dad does that when he plays the fiddle with zero words. And I think I inherited um, the ability to tap into a very deep place and to do that also with words. What I said about dynamics maybe can't be overstated. Like I've seen moments on stage where there's a singer just like going for it and people love those big notes right like if you watch the voice and there's that moment two-thirds of the way through the song where they're like ah you know they hit that one note and the crowd's like "Woo! this is our cue to make a big sound back and that's kind of an interesting theatrical device and i'm in favor of that but if you did that for the whole song you wouldn't get them, you know? So that's the thing um, that I learned from theater is like, if you're in their lap, that was a term directors would use, like, stop being in our lap. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like, give me a little space as an audience member. Don't like constantly. And as a person, I tend to overdo it. I tend to, I had to take that note. I had to work on like connecting to something so tiny, but so true that, you are interested in it from way over there. And I'm not thinking too hard about you, except that I'm focusing on this tiny fire I'm kindling over here. And that's interesting to you over there. It's it's like flirtation or something or, or something. And that's what's so cool, I think, about singing is um and 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 singing with other people. Like Mike and I have some songs where we sing really loud and then we sing really quiet, you know. This one song that he wrote that I sing called Rock on Little Jane, it has that power note toward the end. It's like it's such a power note. I was like, I love to do that. But what's really cool is that song has a quiet chorus until the last one. The verses are loud. Some people want to tell you. That's the verse. And then the chorus is, you rock on little Jane. And that's weird. So it's backwards. Everybody expects the chorus to be loud. And finally, we give them a loud one at the end. So I guess that's, you know, part of its arrangement, part of it's just intention and just remembering that audiences love both things. They love to be like shaken by the, you know, hair. And they also love to be left alone for a little while. You got to do all of it. That sounds like a relationship. <laughs> I hope so.
Let's talk about the Ashokan Center in Olive Bridge, New York. It's a huge part of your life now and also a huge part of your growing up. Um, so for those who are not aware, what is it like there? And then how did that place help shape you? Wow. Okay. The Ashokan Center is a beautiful 385-acre preserve, essentially. It's, it's, um, there are some buildings that are about a decade old. They were um, built to be more sustainable than the previous buildings. They're more well insulated and um, uphill away from the flood. <laughs> but the original buildings held a special place in my heart as well. They were really funky old camp that had been there for like, I don't know, since the 60s, 70s. I bet I know what it smells like. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that area down by the water is returned entirely to nature. So it's just oh, like wow. a, a camping so area nice. now. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you felt that right there. Yeah. So so the new facility, um, the new buildings are just so beautiful and, and really, really wonderful. And then the, the land is gorgeous. And um, so for over 50 years, they've been doing um, outdoor education, living history programs, for kids who come, like school groups come up there, mostly from the city or Long Island and kids getting out in nature who don't usually get into nature. So it's a great experience. And they've also for 40 years in the summers been at first renting it out to different groups who did all sorts of stuff. So my dad was one of their big biggest customers starting in, in the early 80s doing these music and dance camps, traditional music and dance camps, where I grew up attending and just hanging out. And so this year is the 40th anniversary of Ashoka Music and Dance Camps. And it's been, I think, 10 years since the, the changing of hands of the whole place. I didn't really explain this very chronologically, but um, the land used to be owned by SUNY New Paltz. And SUNY New Paltz was tired of dealing with the constant flooding that was shutting down the programs that were taking place in the buildings by the water. So they put the whole thing up for sale. My dad and a whole bunch of music and dance people formed a foundation Governor George Pataki of New York City and the Open Space Commission helped out. They saved the land. They made this whole deal with the DEP so that the the city can release water whenever they want and it doesn't disrupt the programs. And we have new buildings uphill. And it was this whole incredible, wow, incredible thing orchestrated by a group of people. But definitely, my dad had a major role in, and and my stepmom too. And they they've done an amazing thing. So they preserved the land. They preserved the outdoor education programs. And the place for these music camps, which now, instead of just a few weeks in the summer, starts in the spring with weekend camps. And there's, I think, 11 every year now, including New Year's Eve, which is a fun camp. So it's a great place. I work there as the director of arts and communications now, which is, I'm, I've been become even more grateful for that now that we can't tour as I have like a job job. For the past two years, I've been doing all that work, like either from home or on the road on tour, depending. But um that job basically consists of helping to coalesce the vision of the place and get the word out about what we do and um, to really try and up our game as a venue and just do our best at communicating. Um, it's really it's really a beautiful place. It's a magical place to step foot and just kind of get away from it all. Your cell phone does work there now. It used to not work, which was <laughs> part of the magic. <laughs> but I think they put up a new tower somewhere, so... So, yeah, but you, you can still avoid uh, the cares of the world when you're there. That's really the feeling. And that's why my dad wrote that tune, Ashokan Farewell, in 1982. It was at the end of the summer when camps had ended for the summer, and he was just having that letdown 
<sighs> that letdown feeling at the end of the summer, getting back to the quote unquote real world. And that's really how I think of a shogun. It's just that magical place that you're sad to leave, you know, <laughs> um, and that you're happy to re rejoin every time. Right now, there's online camps happening. There's literally one happening right now, Western Swing Week Online. Um, I've been assisting from remotely with the live streams and uh, it's incredible to see the community that comes together online. It's not quite the same as the experience on the ground, but um, it's actually more fun than, than I expected. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 It's still worth doing. <laughs> it's yeah. so Somebody was calling in from Ashokan. One of our employees was like on the zoom today from one of the porches there and just everyone's like oh, is that the, the that building is actually called blue bathroom because it's just a building that's blue <laughs> and is a bathroom but it has this beautiful porch like oh man are you at blue bathroom <laughs> that's like when matt when matt smith and abby altman call in to yeah. the passim zoom calls from passim we're all like oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's exactly right yeah, yeah it's totally like that it's so funny that um your dad wrote a shok and farewell about the camp and and as a sort of like a coming down off summer and then on your new record you also have i mean the first track is called coming down off summer yeah i did you did you think, think about, about that, that. not at all <laughs> i just wrote a song about it and i was like oh yeah that's like that feeling that everybody gets you know that we all understand it's almost like back to school there's like something about it where you're like okay let's get some clean notebooks and pencils like maybe there's something positive about it but there's also this like kind of just making the best of it feeling me <laughs> yeah and and i i laughed because we were releasing this album may 22nd uh you know with the opening track coming down off summer it's kind of weird but um Little did we know, we're still coming down off last summer because right. we're not hitting the road on tour. So, yeah, that song is just continuing to ring true. This is just like the longest <laughs> fall and winter of of our career. <laughs> uh, your parents were diving deep into traditional music styles like folk, blues, country, old time. And they seemed to like lean into a musical identity that was based on genuine authenticity in music versus commercialism which sounds very much like where you're at with with music but I'm interested like when did you identify that in your parents and how did you see that identity affecting your life and your beliefs as a young person were you like screw that Paul Abdul uh yeah <laughs> No, I honestly never really thought of my dad and Paula Abdul as being in the same business. You know, it's like almost so completely different. And uh, <laughs> I almost feel like I want you to reiterate that entire question because it was really right on and also very long. And I'm trying to like latch on to so many thoughts that it was like fireworks in my head while you're saying that. I think <laughs> the idea of like music, good commercialism bad it's definitely you know an oversimplification of a very real thing in maybe the folk world at large and certainly in my family um my dad is a good business person though you know like he knows how to 
copyright something and you know he knows the intricacies of some of the weird parts of the music business that you need to know um you know i actually remember when somebody copied a show farewell for an at&t commercial so yeah i was probably like in college and they even copied like the ken burns effect no yeah, no, for real. It was like Thomas Edison invented. It was like the first telephone or like whatever. And it was like sepia tone pictures panning across. And it was this lonesome violin playing this tune that was. And people were writing to my dad, like, they stole your tune. They stole your tune. And I would play that tune and he would play Shook and Furball together and we would see where they diverged. And it was literally like, you know, eight notes different, but that was like mathematically the legal requirement for it to be called another tune i mean like whoever did this they knew exactly they, knew they what were they like were doing surgically oh. imitating it without being able to yeah anyway i think that was one of those moments where i was thinking you know like that's it there's people like at&t who want music who that's what they do like that's not what we do <laughs> you know, right. what we do is we have a feeling and we play a thing and like those people in like lab coats dissecting your tune so they don't have to pay for it. It's, that's not us. <laughs> like that's a whole other world of people, you know. Um, and maybe I've over the years like figured out the gray area there a little bit more. Like Mike and I did an almond milk commercial a few years ago <laughs> that was like me whistling, playing the uke, and singing a couple notes about California sunshine, and uh, that paid more for like a day's work than like the rest of the year of work like that wow. one day <laughs> and it was kind of fun you know kind of low stakes because I didn't care about the song and it wasn't but it was like one of those moments where I was like wow okay there are people this is like all they do you know and I don't want to judge anybody but it does feel a little soulless and a little like, but you know, I'd rather do a day of that every year and be able to like, I don't know, put my kids through college or something. I yeah. don't know. So, so anyway, it was, it was a cool experience to do that, that one commercial. Um, the following year they came back and we were the, the, we were the track to imitate now. You know, so we were trying to imitate ourselves, and we didn't get it, which was <laughs> it was pretty fun. <laughs> it's like, no, sorry. I made a mistake. Uh, You're the John Fogarty of It was like New really York. funny. What happened was I actually like sang in a different way. I don't know if you've noticed, but I kind of have some different voices that I don't intend to do. And I hope they're not too corny. But like the second year we did something that had like maybe a bluesier vibe. And they were like, can we get the original singer back? And I was like, oh, it's me. <laughs> but either way, they weren't into our second one. The funny thing is, though, the second time around in doing some preparation to try and pitch some stuff to them, I did write a song that I kind of really liked. And I was like, oh, this is kind of a good song inspired, you know, like written for the assignment. But I liked it so much, I actually didn't want to give it to the commercial people so I kept it and then I finished it and that's actually on the record it's called California <laughs> that is a good song but I never would have written that <laughs> I never would have written that if it wasn't for being assigned to sing about California and like sunshine and fruit oh wow 
So, so like, literally, it's the most commercial song that I've ever written. I'm so proud of it. And actually, my dad, he loves that song. He was like, wow, you wrote that song? Where did that song come from? You know, it's like, sometimes you have to challenge yourself and do a weird thing that doesn't feel authentic. And then, like, you know how structure is. It, like, makes you aggressively be yourself. So there's, like, a tension there Mm -hmm. when you have a structure. That's awesome. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I just went off on a big tangent there, but hopefully that answered some of it. Yeah, as many tangents as you want, Ruth. Okay, cool. Your dad has been married to Molly Mason since 1991, and they are Jay Unger and Molly Mason. Um, they met in the 70s, and it seems like everyone was kind of like running around in the same scene together. Yeah. What was it like for you when they started playing together as a duo and then when they got married? Well, let me think back. You know, I don't know that I remember the whole chronology of that part so much, but um, Molly played bass in my dad's band, Fiddle Fever. So from the time I was like four. And um, so I knew Molly, you know, from when my mom and dad were still together. My mom is Lynn Hardy, who we already mentioned, I think. And then um, she and my dad also did a lot of duo work had some albums as Jay Unger and Lynn Hardy. And then, and th- so those albums are available, were the ones that were on vinyl, the Jay and Lynn era. And then s- somewhere around there, like I learned to sing harmony from my mom and Molly singing together. Cause she would play bass for Jay and Lynn. And so it'd be a trio and she played bass. They did a lot of wedding gigs around like when I was maybe, you know, six. And I remember, the beautiful songs that they would sing, like beautiful folk songs like uh, The Bramble in the Rose or um, I don't know. I can think of all sorts of cool stuff and hearing the three-part harmony of them or, or, you know, just in the car learning the third part. It was fun. Yeah, so when my mom and dad split up and then pretty shortly thereafter my dad and Molly got together, I already knew Molly, so... She was already a a close friend. And uh, yeah, I actually don't really know when they started being like a duo or making records. But by the time they did that, they were on CD, not vinyl. So that's the technological Keeping track of the media. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I noticed that later. I was like, there's no Jay and Molly on vinyl. There's, you know, that was like something shifted in technology right around that time. (laughs) But they've made many, many great CDs. And continue to play in, you know, more modern modern mediums like their current Wednesday night quiet room uh, live stream on Facebook that they do every week. Raising money for Ashokan, too. They put a donate button up and it went wild. Yeah, they they they've done a ton. They've they recorded a ton, and um, I think also I when I started hosting on Folk Alley, they emailed me and uh-huh. welcomed me, which I was. I would never forget. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, the, and and the thing is, is that my mom, who was in Western Mass for a long time, she moved back about 12 years ago to the Woodstock area. And ever since my folks split up, like, they still get along and more and more as years went by. So to the point where they were just hanging out yesterday and without me, so... they they get along really well and they um you know we're a small family you know my 
we don't have a, a ton of people, so we uh, we stick together. Got to keep them close, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you you yeah. play with your dad and Molly and with your mom, which I imagine these are like the three musicians aside from Mike that you know best in life. And sure. how does each of their playing styles reflect their personalities? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I feel like my mom is... Um, I write songs a little bit like her, you know, like story songs and kind of clever language type songs, which is different than Mike. He writes songs that are really poetic and um, evocative and sort of from a more like kind of inspired, nonlinear place. So, yeah, I think my mom... How does it? How does it? How does it express in her person? I'm saving Molly for last because she'll be the most fun. But okay, so my my mom my mom likes humor. She likes being direct. She's not embarrassed very easily. So I think that is the style of my mom. She's she likes country songs. She likes funny songs, sarcastic songs. The song on on the new Mammals album on the bonus disc that I feel like reminds me of her the most is All the Things, which is a song I wrote, sort of like almost John Prine-ish uh, confessional type song. And uh, there's a little bit of shock value in there. I don't know. I think that's my mom. She likes to... She was in a band called Rude Girls in the, the 80s and 90s. So, um, you know, they used to sing songs that they said were going to make 49% of the audience a little uncomfortable. That was, their, that was their vibe. Anyway, so yeah, my dad is a Scorpio and is um, just really good at the fiddle. And I think that that combination is a thing, you know, like yeah. it's like he's got this emotional connection, a confidence. He's very grounded. He's very fixed in where he's at. And he can like focus in that way. That's what he loves to do. You know, he's really good at a lot of other stuff. But when he gets to do that, you can see how much he enjoys it. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's him, you know, just he uh, he doesn't leave a lot of space in his playing. He just kind of keeps flowing. It's like very much like water. Um, there's dynamics and range, but it's almost kind of just like full on and very reliable. <laughs> that's my dad <laughs> like in the best way you know it's something there's something really comforting in his playing in his style and also I would say his personality in that way um it's definitely like yeah somewhere between water and a rock I don't know well that's cool this is fun. Keep going. <laughs> okay, cool. So Molly Mason, the uh, the rhythm the rhythm queen. There's this tune. If you haven't heard the Fiddle Fever album, uh, I think it's Old Fashioned Love, where she's like one, two, one, two, three, four, like off the top, like you know, kind of <laughs> off the mic. But you can hear her just like count it out. And she is the bass player in that band. And not a whole lot of takes start with your bass player counting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> just thinking about that right now. Um, they uh, they kind of teased her about that, but she's just so fierce about the beat. You know, she played bass for so many years. Just 
ferocious talent on that instrument and just knowledge of chords and and getting from A to B, not an A chord to a B chord, but you know what I mean? Like propelling you from this chord to the next. She's just like has that real certainty in her playing and she mostly plays guitar now but I love when she plays bass like um and and I love that her playing on the guitar is very much about bass runs and still about like a groove it's not like a pretty sound you know <laughs> it's it's <laughs> aggressive and she is it's she is a little bit aggressive I guess I think I do take after her a lot in um just just uh, being very just definitive about things. And sometimes that can get her and I in trouble when we are actually wrong and we think we're right. So <laughs> that's something I got to work on. But I know that, um, yeah, this maybe circles back to my mom a little bit. Her band Rude Girls used to say, ignorance with confidence. <laughs> something about once you're on stage, it's like, just pretend you know what it is. Make it till you and make it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But Molly, you know, for all her assertive vibes on the rhythm, um, she also is really encouraging to people learning. And I noticed that when she's teaching, she really loves to pass it on. She loves to not keep that secret and go, oh, you'll never guess the wizardry of my bass runs. Like she wants to communicate it to new people. And I think that that's a really cool balance to her vibe um when they do these facebook live quiet room sessions it could just be a concert but it's evolved into a learning thing because molly before it before it will say oh this is an a minor but it's got this really tricky you know surprise e chord or whatever and she'll just let everybody know there's gonna be a modulation you know she'll hold her hand up to the screen and and it's it's cool it's cool i think that um yeah she's somewhere between yeah, just like a total rhythm force and then uh, a real a real kind teacher. She encourages our kids, you know, every time they're over, at, at, you know, we don't all get to hang out at their house right now so much, but um, it's a, it's a, it, it's been a pretty common scene to have one of our kids sort of like over at the piano for a second and she's just there in a flash. Uh, oh, what are you learn? What are you doing here? Oh, cool! Like, what if you tried this? You know, it almost drives them crazy because they can't just fart around on the piano. But, but they let they they let her because because they see how much she loves to teach. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Your cute. kids, man, <laughs> special kids. Yeah they're, yeah, they're lucky in that way. So it's it seems like your mom and probably Molly too were loud and proud feminists when you were growing up, like. You're talking about your mom's 80s band, Rude Girls, yeah. who would sing like about sex on stage and yes. role reversal murder ballads. In learning about feminism in the 80s and in particular the 90s, it was a time when like feminist was a dirty word. Um, so in learning about it from your mom, from Molly, from older women in your life, like second wave feminism, feminists, yeah. what was your take on? on feminism and how has it changed? I, I mean, I see feminism as having changed tremendously in the last 10 or so years, but how has it been for you? It really has changed, hasn't it? I'm, uh, yeah. I feel like I'm in like a listen and learn mode now because I realize when I watch a movie from my 
youth that I loved and I see how sexist the, you know, stuff is in there. I'm, I realize it's like, oh, we have turned a corner and, and the things that are ingrained in me are old at this point. You know, um, we actually went to the drive-in, you know, it's a fun quarantine activity. We went to the drive-in movies and they're always showing these older movies. So we went to see a double feature of Back to the Future 1 and 2. And I told my kids, I'm like, get ready to see something racist, something <laughs> sexist, and something just plain wrong. <laughs> and like, see if you can find it because it'll be pretty obvious. <laughs> Believe me, I haven't seen this movie in decades, but I know what's coming because it's like... Yeah, it's really different. I feel like my mom um, really taught me the most about that kind of stuff because she moved to Massachusetts. She moved to Northampton. She, like, was in this all-woman band, and they were all very much, like, writing songs or finding songs that that they could use for this message of... Their band was called Rude Girls. It was about... um, yeah, it was about not conforming again. It was about not worrying about how feminine you were or not. My mom gets gets mistaken for a man sometimes. Her name is Lyndon, first of all, because it's not Lynn like L-Y-N-N or with an E. It's L-Y-N, which is short for Lyndon. And so on her mail, some people might think, you know, like when they call business calls, they think she's a man. She also has a deep voice. She's always had, um, well, not anymore, but... In the 80s, 90s, she had a short kind of butch haircut and, uh, you know, like wore her shirt. It's kind of like I'm wearing right now. with like the sleeves cut off and like jeans that weren't cute, tight jeans. And like, yeah, like she fixed things and sanded wood and like just wasn't super ladylike, uh, you know, as far as she was raised to be. You know, she was raised in a time where, oh, isn't she a, a sweet lady? You know, like she wanted to be Shirley Temple when she was a little girl, you know, <laughs> so she evolved. Mm. And I heard a lot of stories about her youth, like, like yeah, her mom's bridge club, they would smoke cigarettes and she would pick one up from the ashtray and pretend to smoke it. Oh, what a little lady. Like that was admired. Yeah. <laughs> so she smoked her whole life. And what are we going to do about that? Like that's that was ingrained real early. Then the next story I'll think of is like, Uh, Being in high school and wanting to play the drums or wanting to play the trumpet. No, sorry, those aren't ladylike instruments. You don't get to play those, you know. If you want to be in the band, you could be in a short skirt twirling a baton out front. That's cool. And she had nice legs and she looked cute and she did that, you know. And that was how she got to participate. She really wanted to be playing the drums or the trumpet, you know. So I guess... Compared to that, I had it really easy. I could play any instrument I want. I never felt like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess each decade and each generation has a slightly stretchier environment to uh, to reach out. But then I think I think feminism right now. Um, when you said feminism was a dirty word, it's like for me, I don't remember it feeling that way. Like I remember feeling, or maybe. Maybe if it was a dirty word, that's what made it interesting, you know. Um, my mom saying, you know, the song, the Rude Girl Songbook is called uh, the Rude Girl Songbook: Songs of Sin, Suffering, and Safe Sex. <laughs> <laughs> and the Safe Sex song was one that my mom wrote that I actually got to help with one of the rhymes, you know, as a kid because I was like, that rhymes with this. But yeah, it's just a song about 
always using condoms, which, hey, still a great message. Right. Not everybody was doing that in the 80s. <sighs> yeah, for real. Yeah. And uh, still now. <laughs> <laughs> I assume. Uh, so let's see. I had a bunch of questions about acting that you already answered. You went to Bard. I you did. moved to New York to be an actress for a couple of years. You decided to leave, but not before you met Mike Miranda, which you were talking about a little bit that he was someone's roommate and you were not super pumped to meet him. But then how did it go? It was cool. We we met at a at a party that was um like a barred Christmas party thing that they do every year, like in New York and a few other cities. So it's kind of like almost like a reunion. But I was just like a fresh graduate and I've never been back to this party. I should probably go again. Yeah. So we met at this party. He was a friend's roommate. We actually went back to their apartment way downtown. Um, I lived in Hell's Kitchen on West 49th Street, West 50th Street around that time. And he lived down the financial district in this funky area where nobody lived. It was pretty weird to go down there. Like it felt really far away. <laughs> I remember um, I like, I think I took a cab because I couldn't figure out how to get home from there. And I remember thinking like, wow, that was a crazy like place. And I went back the next night. So I guess I had fun, you know, I wanted to go back the very <laughs> next night and uh, started singing harmony on his songs. And I think the second night I stayed over on their couch because it was like, yeah, I'm not taking that cab again. But, you know, it's late. So I remember like just having this cool experience of like, I don't know, it was like I discovered this little pocket of fun people and it was Mike and then also his friend who lived upstairs who played the mandolin. Carter Little, he's the one who had like Jody Stecker and Kate Brislin records and and even some Fiddle Fever or Jay and Lynn records up there, which was crazy to me. So oh wow, yeah, and he played mandolin and like knew what I don't know the difference between bluegrass and old time music. You know, it was like okay, this is <laughs> this is game on. Like I don't have to pretend I don't know this stuff. Maybe I should try and remember it actively a little bit. You know, it's a different shift in my head. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. It was great. And Mike is, um, you know, he's such a great songwriter. At the time, he was an indie rock drummer in the band Spouse and also, like, writing songs and playing acoustic guitar. And um, and so I would go to see Spouse shows and watch him play drums. And we would do this band with Carter, the three of us, Carter, Mike, mm. and I, we called it Rheingold. And that's when I started writing songs and just kind of stopped doing theater pretty quickly because I realized... That was like the only crappier job that you could try to make a living at because at least for a music gig, you might make 50 bucks on a terrible night. Whereas for theater, it was like costing me money to do that theater. Like it was like negative income. But um, but yeah, I still have no regrets with all the theater background that I did because I think it really informs the way I tell a story or totally just stand on a stage or whatever and and it, it's also work ethic I think theater people um just work their butt off and just don't expect a lot and I just love being around other people like that people who are resourceful who can like take a cardboard box and make something cool out of it and just make a show you know make let's make this a show let's take 
you know, okay, you have this talent, you have this skill, we have like three blue t-shirts, what can we do? You know, let's figure it out. (laughs) So when you started the Mammals, were you still in New York or were you out of the city? Mike and I had um, moved out of New York to Western Mass. That was where his band spouse was sort of centered. And uh, my mom was there becoming a luthier. Um, so we lived in Cummington, Mass, up in the Hilltowns. It's a cool house. And, and it was, uh, I got a day job working at a photo lab in Pittsfield. And Mike was working at Fretted Instruments with my mom in Amherst. So when we were at work, we were an hour and a half apart. And then at night, we drove to Cummington. Um, so it was kind of like a, I don't know, it was tough. You know, we were in our early 20s. We were working to pay our rent and like trying to play music and it was all right. And then mammals started. Yeah. Cowtown. Yeah, seriously. The creamery is the coolest thing. Yeah. I love the creamery there. And um, yeah, so then we ended up, uh, we did that for a while. And then um, that was like a year. I think that was maybe the year either 99 or no, that was the year 2000. That was the year 2000 that we lived there. And then we moved into the house in West Hurley, New York, where we live. And um, we started the Mammals in Massachusetts, but kind of kept it going as we moved back to New York because we had met Tao Rodriguez Seeger. Mike had met him from working at Fred and Instruments. Again, thank you, Workman's Comp Claim, because that's why my mom was there. So that's why the Mammals. Wow. (laughs) That's just like the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, yeah, seriously, I haven't really thought about that. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, so that's how come he met Tao. We started that band together. You know, Tao was another person who was like, had a whole lot of learned folk knowledge just absorbed because his grandfather's Pete Seeger and he'd been touring as a teenager with Pete, but also had a lot like love that Mike was a rock drummer and wrote arty songs and, you know, didn't really want it to be trad entirely, mm-hmm. you know, but mm-hmm. uh, had a knowledge of like the kind of chord patterns from like Celtic music and like the groove of Cajun music and kind of an appreciation of all that stuff. So the Mammals was a cool mishmash of um, original songs and traditional stuff. And um, yeah, and then we just kept that going. And So the, there's a famous saying of the Mammals that the band is too folk for the rock show and too rock for the folk show. Um, And I would imagine that it's like you and Tao bringing your folk roots and then Mike bringing his rock roots. So when you first started playing with Mike, how did you have to adapt your playing and how has performing with someone like him changed your musicianship? Uh, Well, that's a cool question. Really, I feel like uh, Tao was the one who wanted to rock the most. Mike had already rocked, so he was kind of almost bringing the folk even more. It was like he was rebelling. I don't know. I feel like we all had a little of everything going on. And that two two folk for the rock show, two rock for the folk show thing is like something we coined more recently in like this version of the band. Um, Tao is no longer in the band. He we we were we did the mammals for like eight years. We toured all over the place. We parted ways with Tao. He is now not doing music and living in Maine and being a dad and and having his life outside of the folk spotlight, which he enjoys. And we reclaimed the mammal's name a few years ago. So in the the meantime, we were called Mike and Ruthie. And now we're the mammals again. And yeah, this two rock, two folk thing, 
I think what makes the mammals the mammals and the reason why we felt it was appropriate to reclaim the name was because we were doing stuff that has like a fiddle and banjo vibe, but also has bass and drums where you're actually like, you know, not only supporting a fiddle vibe, but like really rocking out, you know, and um, and it's traditional vibe and original songs. So I think that the main thing that that I had to alter to fit with Mike musically was to sing quieter. His voice is so quiet. Um, you know, <laughs> I like, like the it's, tone of voice, his voice is so uh, quiet. Uh. Is, yeah, no, it's hard to <laughs> sing with someone that, I mean, it really helped me develop my dynamics and my blend with him. Um, uh, when it was Tao, Mike and I, Tao has like this edgy, loud tone, just a naturally louder tone that was easier for me to blend with. And then Mike had this quiet thing. And so like, I kind of would fill the gap and we had a three part blend going and then when it was just Mike and I, just the two of us, I really had to, I really had to pull it back and figure out how to do that. And he can sing loud too, but even him singing loud, it it's breathy, let me say, a little bit, you know, his, his tone. And so it's, that was, I think, the thing I had to alter the most, you know, and that, and just learn the lexicon of like drums. Like he speaks drums, so he'll turn to our drummer and be like, Ba 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 ba, and the drummer will go, okay, cool, and do the thing. Like me, I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know how to speak drums, you know. Like I, I guess I do a little bit now. But. The Hoot is this biannual music festival that you and Mike produce at Ashokan Center, and it launched in 2013. And I'm wondering, like, as people who have performed and attended, like, countless music festivals, how did you strive to make your music festival different? Like, what model did you base the hoot from? And, like, what is a festival that maybe, like, was encompassing th something that you wanted to incorporate into the hoot? Cool question. So we're we're kind of trying to be, like, a tiny, low-budget pick-a-thon, maybe? Um, because... I remember once um, our friend Aoife O'Donovan was like, you guys should play Pickathon. And I was like, Pickathon? That sounds like a bunch of good old boys in like baseball caps, like Pickathon. Like, that's not us. Like, Pickathon? And then I found out what, what it was. It's like, oh, they gave it that name. It's almost like to fool people or something. <laughs> like, so you won't know how cool it actually is. And we got there and we were like, what? This is it. Because there would be like... A cool indie band like Vetiver followed by Bruce Mulski or something. And I was like, man, whoever books this festival gets it. Like, it's music. It's not about let's show that, let's show our audience one thing that they understand. Let's, let's mm. believe our audience has a broader palette. You know, that's what the hoot's about. Like, convincing people who never square dance to square dance. You know, um, the very first hoot was the winter hoot. Uh, Spirit Family Reunion were our headliners, and they um, they showed up. They went straight in the dressing room, and I was like, "Oh, I hope they're gonna hang out," because kind of the part of of Ashokan and the Who is like, you know, we don't hire the band that's gonna like sit in their tour bus, play, and then drive away. Like people are gonna hang, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was like, "Okay, well, they're prepping for their set," and they played an incredible set, and they brought out a young crowd, and it was a really cool set. It was so good. They play like what my mom would call like non-denominational non gospel music, basically. Like, you know, it's 
it's like BYO God Church or something. <laughs> and they, uh, you know, they just raged and they're great. And they, and then they stuck around and the square dance was immediately after that set. Like we did the late night square dance. We stole that from Pickathon with the idea that, you know, I remember my stepmom being like, really? Who's going to square dance at 1030 at night? Well, <laughs> when they wake up the people who are sleeping in Red Maple? And I'm like, no, they'll be there dancing. Like, believe me, it'll work. And I had to push for it. And um, I just remember how amazing it was. Like, it was so cool. Because then all the fans were dancing with the band that they just watched because they were done with their set and ready to hang out. The bar was open. An older woman I've known my whole life who's come to your show in my whole life, like, pulled me aside and was like, these people don't know what they're doing. Like, because, uh, the you know, it, they didn't know the moves, you know? It wasn't like a bunch <laughs> of square dancers. It was just a bunch of people, you know? And I turned to her and I was like, I know. <laughs> like, like, she looks at me like, oh. And she's come every year. She loves it. Like, this very person. Like, it's like... We don't need the people to square dance that already square dance. We need the people to square dance that don't already square dance. You know, we need a a freak square dance where you can be <laughs> whoever. And you can not know how to do-si-do and, and maybe pick it up by the end of the night. You know, Kristen Andreessen has been, you know, for the first several years was always our caller. As I know, she just makes people feel at ease. Oh, yeah. And she can call a real easy dance. You know, I grew up with my dad doing that at weddings. He He's not known as a caller, but when he was hired for a wedding gig, there were like three or four dances he could call for a bunch of, you know, we call it like kids, drunks, and beginners, you know, you can just, <laughs> if you can call with that crowd in mind, you know, it's perfect. And people always remember that so much because it's so different from their normal, like Netflix watching life. Oh, and totally. that's what's so sucky about pandemic it's like the first thing was like no square dance dang (sighs) yeah it's probably gonna be a while before we can square dance again seriously yeah Yeah. but anyway at the hoot we try to we try to mix it up and a lot of the festivals that we've traveled to we've stolen little things from like oh this festival does this cool thing backstage or this cool thing off stage or like i love the festivals where you get paid when you get there I stole that from, I think, Earthwork Harvest <laughs> Gathering. Yeah, the band is going to play. You don't have to wait till they're done and then go chase after them and give them their check. Like, welcome them with a check. I like that tradition. That's There's the pull, a few other things. That's going to yeah. be the pull quote for the episode. <laughs> I like the festival where the band gets paid when they arrive. Yeah. Uh, Do you really think they're going to leave? Like. <laughs> Every other festival that waits? No, you just do it because you think that's how it works. But, it, it, you know, as we say, this machine runs on karma. Totally. <laughs> Pete, uh, Pete Seeger played the Hoot in its first year in 2013. And that and he's a musician. Yes. Summer that, Hoot. Summer Hoot. And yeah. He's a musician that you've collaborated with, celebrated, and you've basically, like, been in the Seeger sphere for many years. Um, and in thinking about his approach to activism and the torch that the mammals are carrying of Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Odetta. What did you learn about authenticity, connection, and storytelling from from those musicians and activism from those musicians? Wow. Well, you know, Pete directly told us, really told Mike, I think, because he looked at Mike as like 
the songwriter of our band, he used to say things about like not playing all protest songs, you know, like you want one in your set. He would open his song, Skip to Maloo. He would, I mean, open a show with Skip to Maloo. He'd put people at ease. He'd sing comfortable songs, familiar songs. He was being political in that they were diverse in their origin, maybe folk songs from around the world. Maybe that in and of itself could have been looked at as a statement. But when he was really making an intense statement with a song, it was like a well-chosen single song in the middle of the set. You know, and then and that that gets through, you know, so that's something we learned. Just how to shape a set. Because it really is important to get that message through. And I think, you know, there's a couple of songs on our new album that where I say something in the third verse. To me, that's like the mini version of like a Pete set. You know. If mm. you've got a verse and a chorus and people are feeling it. Did Pete have Twitter? <laughs> Thank God. I, I feel like yeah. Actually, I wonder if he would have been an amazing tweeter. But I will say that, like... But that's a good, like, your, like, I'm going to say something in the third verse is a good, like, modern form of what Pete was saying. Because how long do you have someone's attention for these days? Right. Yeah. I mean, and right now I'm like, okay, Black Lives Matter. Maybe I should have written this song, verse, chorus, bridge, all on topic and not just mess around and wait till the third verse to say stand or take a knee or wait till the third verse to say if someone was to shoot me I bet they wouldn't go free and we wouldn't be talking about how I brought it on myself you Mm. know it's like when I say that stuff in the third verse I'm like I'm it's like all I can stand you know maybe Mm -hmm. that's like kind of almost weak Sometimes I've been questioning that a lot because it's like I'm moved, but I'm moved to say that I'm moved to stand up in mm-hmm. front of like a mostly white festival crowd, you know, in the folk world and say something where I see a few people who are actually listening to the words be like, oh, shit. Yeah. Woo. You know, <laughs> But yeah. it's like, you know, a lot of people are just like, yay, music, you know, right. um, you know, so it's. I think I think what I will say is like I think it was two thousand five or six when we were down in Louisiana. Original ver- ver- uh, iteration of the Mammals played a huge set, got an encore at this outdoor festival, and did our song "The Bush Boys," which was like a very finger pointy anti George Bush song. And um, and an older man like came up to me at the end and was like. It was a mixture of cheers and boos. You know, we got like, like some people were like, woo, I'm in Louisiana where no one sings like this. This is amazing. <laughs> and some people were like, you know, who, who who let the crazy Woodstock hippies do that? You know, and they, they got letters like to the festival and I got sat down in the food tent and told not to sing that song again. <laughs> like the whole thing. It's all well documented. You can Google it. It's actually like kind of fun to read the articles but um the older man who spoke to me heart to heart like took my hand like look me in the eye at the end of the set was like you were my new favorite band and until you went and played that last song (laughs) it's crazy like I can still remember it and just standing there and being like so stoked that we had done the song like I wasn't like oh no I lost a fan like He's, right. I could tell he still liked us. He just couldn't rationalize how he could like us 
and disagree with us. Right. And and it was a moment. Like I believe I want to believe that guy softened some part of himself after that. I love that guy. I still love him. I <laughs> like I like I like hug him in my mind right now. Like there was some because he felt like he could come talk to me. That was so cool. There was like um like a orange snow fence kind of thing between us. Like it was like very much like I walked off stage. It was like right at the end. And it was like this heated moment. You could feel it was like electric in the air. And he, he had tears in his eyes. He was like a grown man talking to me with tears in his eyes. And he wasn't like, I'll tell you the rest of the conversation that I'll always remember. Like was he said, I believe George Bush is a Christian man. That was what he said to me. And I said, I'm sure he is. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, yep. And he was like, he was like, well, what, well, what religion are you? And I was like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, like that's the thing in this country is I could, you know, I don't need, I, I, I don't even know how to answer that. Like, you know, it was like, it was like, I kind of opened his mind to the idea that, like, like the beginning of the conversation doesn't have to be like, we both believe this thing and now we can talk. Like I wouldn't yeah. give him an answer. I didn't really want to. And I kind of wanted to watch him just sort of wonder what I was. Right. You know, I don't know. That's interesting. He's still wondering maybe. Yeah. But I do think, I do think that I have listeners like that in my mind now. Like we always say like back then we were just like, nah, nah, like singing finger pointy songs because... We were mad and we were young and we were rabble rousers and we were having fun, mostly preaching to the choir, like singing in upstate New York, you know. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like we're like, oh, it is more urgent that we find new and original ways of getting a message across that is like life or death and very important, whether it's about the environment or social justice. It's like we can't just like be loud and proud and hope people get it. Like we have to be creative and we have to be nuanced here if we can. Mm. So yeah, we're trying to sing about what we're for, you know, like the last album, Sunshiner, Mike wrote a song, Sunshiner. I'm going to be a sunshiner. My granddaddy was a minor. I'm going to be a sunshiner. Like, okay. Yeah. We don't have to denigrate the, the, what our parents and grandparents did. In some cases we maybe do, but like in the case of like, that's what they did. Cool. I come from people who did that and now I am going to do this. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's what that song is to me. And it's not just mining versus solar energy. It's like everything. It's like, yeah, one time human beings were focused in this way. Now we better focus in a new way. If we want this planet, if we want, you know, any kind of societal agreements. Uh, I have so many other questions, but I feel like we have to end soon. But I also, <laughs> I, before before um, we get to the really fun lightning round, um, I just want to say that I haven't finished the episode, but you were on a podcast called Vital Corpse Salon. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was very good. And I really liked what you were saying about learning impatience uh, as a virtue from your children and that it's sometimes <laughs> a good thing when it comes to activism and you're inspired by the impatience of mm. climate activists. Um, totally. It was a great conversation. Um, Thanks. And yeah, I can't wait. I was like halfway through it, but 
Yeah, like it was funny because every podcast I found that you were on, it, they were each two hours long. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I'm just going to have to pick one. I talk a lot. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love talking. Uh, Well, I don't know. I just feel like I'm in this place right now, just like feeling how um, I do have to say, like to say something maybe that wasn't even on my mind a few months ago when that podcast happened. People of my, I was born in 1976. I feel like people of my generation were, were taught to not see color. We're taught that that was like what was polite or respectful and that to see color is racist, right? So mm. obviously that's a little outdated. I'm relieved to be, you know, in a time when, you know, well, you can't fix something that you can't see. You can't heal mm. something that you can't see and name and talk about. I mean, what a relief to not have to <laughs> pretend something is invisible that is ne- was never invisible to begin with. So, um, that's something that's been coming up a lot in conversations um, with friends and and all around. And I think in general, like you're talking about the impatience, like maybe I was talking about climate activists and how inspiring that is or, or seeing our kids and their impatience. And I, I'm just like so moved by that. And I think, yeah, I, I think we have to cultivate patience with ourselves sometimes, but it's a balancing act because you don't want to, um, yeah, you don't want to tolerate just safety you know and I think that's Mm. what is going on right now is like we're in such a heightened state because of there being um coronavirus at large and so everyone's a little on edge and then everyone's at home so everyone has a few more minutes to like think and process and maybe like sort through their own demons a little bit and so that makes for a weird mixture of a time to suddenly re-examine a lot of stuff and um I'm really proud of of what I see happening. You know, I really am. I don't know what's around the corner, but mm. um, I'd rather see stuff and work on it than not see it. I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm like a foolish optimist sometimes, but uh, th- that that gets me through too. All right, Ruth. Miranda. Lightning rounds. Lightning rounds. Okay. All right, here we go. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, Carter Little's Began at the End. Of course. <laughs> he was my bandmate. <laughs> and he wrote this song went A minor E, A minor E, and those shapes oh, that are the sounds same. Easy. You just move it. Yeah. And it was like, oh, shit, I can play that song. That's a real song. I learned guitar really late. <laughs> Batman or Superman? <laughs> I'm not into them. <laughs> What's your karaoke song? Definitely Catwoman would be my answer to oh. that question. All right, karaoke? Oh, maybe more than a feeling? <laughs> uh, dogs or cats or something else? Cats. What is your coffee order? <sighs> Triple tall cap. First concert you went to? Bonnie Raitt, Albany, yeah. Palace with my mom. Last book you read? Ooh. Uh, Ishmael Daniel Quinn. Nice. That's been a. a uh, I've watched some of Mike's Instagram lives. And it's have... kind of like the last book I've reread. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love I love that whole Ishmael thing that's going on <laughs> with Mike. It is it is unavoidable in my home, and I I'm into it too. <laughs> Dream collaboration. 
Ooh. Oh, God, dream collaboration. The first thing that came into my head was Caleb Clotter because I love the way he projects his voice in 365 degree, uh, 360 degree? Yeah, that's how many are in a circle. Caleb, I sometimes think about doing an album of um, like, yeah, country duets or something, somebody like that. Flying or invisibility? Flying. Lord of the Rings or Narnia? Ooh, that's so hard. Uh, <laughs> Narnia. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Australia, which is a whole continent. So I'd have to narrow that down by saying, I can't even remember the name, but a particular beach that's in my head. There were so many beautiful places in Australia that's actually quite challenging to pick one. But um, we'll accept the entire continent. Yeah, let's just do that. Continent yeah. of Australia. All right, that's it. Oh, that was it? All We've right, done cool. the lightning round. Whew. It's a quick yeah. one. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This is really great. Um, you are welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks for the really deep interview. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the great questions. It's fun. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey and Laura McCarthy, with Adam taking the production reins this week. Thanks to our business manager, Lindsay Myers, Alexander Stanton of the beloved Pittsburgh ensemble Townspeople uh, does our music on Basic Folk. Basic Folk is proud to be a part of the American Songwriters Podcast Network. I'm Cindy Howes. You can find more details on this episode and all of the other thousands of episodes that have been done on my website, cindyhouse.net. You can also find it wherever you get podcasts. And I thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. <laughs>